you'd turn tonight in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Luke 8. And Jesus is now, he's made a single circuit around the Sea of Galilee. And while he stops in his own hometown of Capernaum, he's visiting Magdala and Yardanes, which is on the Jordanian side of the Sea of Galilee, while he's making this transition before he starts his next trip, which will ultimately take him to the cross. There's kind of a little interlude that happens in Luke's gospel. It's also recorded in Mark's gospel early there in Mark chapter 4, but Jesus is now going to take just a little bit of time, and his own family's going to get involved here for a moment. Uh, His mom and his brothers are going to come. We're going to pick up our story in verse 16. Uh, We'll be looking through verse 25 tonight. And it's really a two-part message because it is this interlude. And there's there's kind of this time where Jesus is specifically kind of ministering in a very, very local sense. And so he does some things that are specifically for his disciples and for his family. And so he's kind of turned around. He's been ministering to the multitudes. We've watched him feed the 5,000. We've seen him do all these amazing miracles. We've been traveling with Jesus now for a year and a half here on Sunday nights. And now we come to this little time where he's going to take just a little bit of a break. And he's going to minister very specifically to a very small group that will include the disciples and his own family. And he shows us the amazing dynamic abilities, the, the, the fact that he is God. He, he does some things that only God could do. And in doing so, as he always does, he uses them for a purpose, to shed light uh, on this world. And so would you pray with me as we uh, continue our Simply the Savior series tonight with the Dynamic Master and our first part of this study. Father, we again so grateful that we can be engaged in work all over the world, and we are thankful for this team. Would you uh, bless them, bless Pastor Pat and Mary as they oversee the team and and pray again that you would just bless them as they go. And Lord, we who are here and remain, Lord, we pray that you would just speak into our lives tonight. Refresh us, Lord. Would you refresh us tonight? Would your spirit fall upon us in a fresh and a new and a wonderful way? As we get to study your word, Lord, that we are here safe and sound in this beautiful air-conditioned building, Uh, Lord, when it's roasting outside and we're we're here comfortable and and in peace. Uh, Thank you for that, Lord. And we pray now that this time would be a blessing as we turn our attention to heaven, to your word. Lord, speak to us as your children, as your disciples. Could we kind of listen in, God, tonight? As you minister to the disciples, could we hear the same word you spoke to them? Make it alive to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So he begins here in verse 16 in Luke chapter 8. And he now has spoken of the the actual interpretation of the parable of the sower. He tells us what the seed is. It's the word of God. And he speaks to that issue. And then he turns his attention uh, to kingdom citizens, to his, to his own, to his disciples, to his actual family that will come into the picture uh, in just a few verses. And no one, when he has lit a lamp, and, and remember, 
it's important for us. You know, they, they didn't, nobody pulled out their, you know, their Bic lighter at that time. They wouldn't have pulled out their cell phone and been able to, you know, go recharge it. When someone lit a lamp during that day and time, um, they were wasting very precious resources if that light didn't have a purpose. Uh, whereas in our modern homes, we go on and, you know, you watch the electric meter spin around and around and around. And, you know, many of us probably have our air conditioning on right now. So when we go home, our home will be cool. And we probably even have a few lights on. We have some of those low voltage lights in our backyard and our front yard so people can see, you know, the entry to our home. We leave lights on all the time. If you have children, uh, you have a full-time job just turning the lights off after they've been in a room, right? You just follow them around, turn it off. It, It was not so during that day and time. When someone lit a lamp, it was normally olive oil, very expensive. Nobody had a bunch of it. And it was a very crude lamp that was often used. Very often, it was nothing more than a saucer with a wick hanging out the side of the saucer. And they would light the wick itself. And it would provide a modicum, a very modest amount uh, of light. And, And usually, when you did that, it was only for a very short period of time. And it was something that needed to be done. It certainly wouldn't have been so that you could watch television. And so... You need to put that into cultural perspective to understand the importance of what Jesus is saying when he says, no one when he has lit a lamp covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed. Now, do you see it? You see, for us, we might actually do that. You might leave your flashlight on and throw it underneath your bed just to watch it glow out from underneath your bed. We we do a lot of strange things in our Western culture, but to them, this may mean that the next three or four days, they have no light. They, they, they would have no ability. And so it was a very important thing that was done when someone lit a lamp and they would not have hidden it. They would have put it up nice and high to where that, that light could flood out onto what they were attempting to see. They would not light it for any other reason than something very important. But sets it on a lampstand that those who enter may see the light It was considered uh, great hospitality to provide light in your home for your guest. And so if you had a guest over, when you're there by yourself, you may well have not lit the oil lamp. You may have left it dark in your home. You may have just simply gone in uh, during that day and time when the sun went down, people went to bed. And now when the sun goes down, people go out. But then it was a very different situation. And so If you took the trouble to light that very expensive oil, you would have set it up nice and high, and it was usually for the purpose of allowing other people to be illuminated. Are you getting the picture? You see, when you get it in the cultural context, all of a sudden the metaphor that Jesus is using becomes very, very bright to us. We see what he's getting at, that those who enter may see the light or actually see in the light. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed. And so he shifts gears to provide the understanding of what that light is for. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to the light. And so he's making a statement about the light itself. And therefore take heed how you hear. 
So he is equating the light to something that you can hear. Jesus, John tells us, is the word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word was the light of men, right? You see, so he's saying, be careful about what you do with the light that has come into your life. Take heed how you hear, for whoever has to him more will be given. And whoever does not have, even what he seems to have, will be taken from him. And so Jesus is making a point here about really his position in the world as light of the world. What you do with the light that the Lord has shown in your life is an extremely important thing for believers. And many believers don't respect the light. And in fact, the light has come into their life. And rather than respecting the light and using the light, they think that that light's just going to continue to shine no matter what they do with it. And Jesus begins to kind of give us this picture of the importance of what we do with the light. You see, as you're a believer and you study God's word, it is important that you be a doer of the word and not just a hearer only deceiving yourself. It is important that the word that you take in is word that you also give out. It is truth that you know that you then act on. Your doctrine that you understand becomes your duty that you engage in. And so Jesus is making this picture because he's done all these amazing miracles. And he's saying, you've seen the light of the world working. You've heard me speak. I have spoken these parables to you. I've told you these deep truths. He's just shared about sowing seed wherever you go. And he's talking about some of the seed lands on the stony path on the edge of the field. And it's picked off by birds. And some of that lands in places where the sun burns it up. And some of it makes it to fertile soil. And so he's making these spiritual analogies of the kingdom of God. And he's saying, when light comes into your life, God expects you to do something with it. Something that has kingdom value. Very often we use the word assurance about our salvation. You you see, God wants us to be sure about our salvation. And one of the quickest ways you have assurance about where you are and who you are and and what the Lord's doing in your life is to take the light that shines upon you, take it in, and then give it out. Do something with it. Because then it becomes truth to you. Because people can hear things and do nothing with it. And so the Lord begins to kind of give this analogy and he backdrops it with, in essence, the same picture that John would write in his gospel, or in his epistles, rather, his, his first epistle in, in 1 John chapter 1. We'll get there in a moment. But remember that parables were spoken, Jesus said, look, because hearing they hear and seeing, hearing they don't hear and seeing they don't see. In other words, he speaks to them plainly, they don't get it, so he partially conceals these things to give them the opportunity to think through what he's saying so that they they can come to a conclusion about what it is that he's teaching. And so in this case, he's drawing them in by giving it a partial obscurity, and he makes them think about what he's trying to say. 
That's why in the parables, very often he will say, the kingdom of God is like. And so now you have to engage your brain. What's he saying? If I just tell you stop sinning, that's just a statement, right? But if I tell you you're supposed to walk in the light as he is in the light, and then I tell you that he actually is the light of the world that's come into the world, then your brain has to engage in order to bring out that truth, and it becomes deeper to you. It's almost as if that mental exercise has now made it experiential to you. You've had to think through it yourself. And so Jesus does that with this first little piece of this interlude. He says, no one, no one having a a lamp is going to cover it with a vessel. He's not going to put it under the bed. It would be costly. It would be wasteful. It would make no sense at all for light to have come into your life, and then you just hide it. Nothing that is secret. It's going to be revealed. And it's hidden. It's going to eventually be known. So the the Lord was saying, look, I've, I've lit the lamp. The lamps shed light in your life. Now do something with it. It's a very simple parable that he's speaking here. You see, because walking in the light is a mark that you're a child of God. Walking in darkness, conversely, is a sign you're not a child of God. And people very often get upset when you say, well, you know, you're judging me. No, I'm not actually judging you at all. I'm telling you exactly what Jesus said. I'm telling you exactly what John repeated. Your Bible declares that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we can say that the love of God is in us. Turn to 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. 1 John 1, verse 5. For this is the message which we heard from him. So John... One of the disciples, one of the apostles who wandered around the region of Galilee with Jesus, who wrote this epistle, was an eyewitness to the majesty of the Lord. He was actually at the crucifixion. He also ran to the garden tomb. He was one of the ones that was there. Says this, this is the message which we've heard from him and declare to you that God is light. And in him is how much darkness? None at all. Not even a smidgen. Somebody somebody offers you a cookie and tells you there's just a little bit of poison in there, you're probably not going to eat it, right? No matter how much poison is inside of the cookie, you're going to reject that cookie. The same is true for God. There's no poison in anything that God offers you. It is 100% light. There's no darkness. If we say that we have fellowship with him, koinonia, if we have that close, intimate contact with the Lord that has brought relationship by joining us together, we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's pretty plain to me. You see, as the body of Christ, if the light has been turned on in your life, you're supposed to emanate life, and you're supposed to emulate life. In other words, you're supposed to shine light out, and you are supposed to imitate 
what Jesus did while he's on this earth. Love those who spitefully use you and persecute you. You're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. You're supposed to do good to those who do evil to you. If someone offers, uh, you take, here, here's my cloak. One mile, no, go two. He says, if you, you walk in darkness, we lie. We don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship. Notice how he turns the corner with one another. That the whole body of Christ, much like the whole body of Christ is defined by love, is also defined by light. The body of Christ is defined by love. It's defined by light. The body of Christ should be bearers of the light, imitators of the light. And so he's saying, look, you should be flashlights for Jesus. Like the, you know, those ones you can get at Harbor Freight that you can like shine on the space shuttle when it's coming. You know what I'm saying? Serious bearers of light. Not kind of hidden someplace underneath a basket to where nobody can tell that you've got any light in you. You're supposed to shine. You're supposed to shine brightly. And if we walk in the light as he is in the light, verse 7 says of 1 John 1, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You see, one of the defining characteristics of the body of Christ is that we not only walk in the light, but we shine the light. And so Jesus is saying, look, if you've been given light, use the light. Shine the light. Be the light. Walk in the light. Don't walk in darkness. Because when you will not use the light that you've already been given, he will not give you any more until you use what you already have. He's not going to show you the deeper things until you begin to use the things that you already have. So walk in the light. As his children, we get more and more light. We're more powerful in that way. And consequently, the darkness that's in us, innate, our, our nature in Adam, gets pushed out. And that darkness gets much more dispersed. Can I remind you that darkness actually isn't anything? Darkness is the absence of light. That's all it is. If there's any light, there's light. And the only reason there's darkness is there's no light. We're supposed to walk in the light. And so he says, use the light that's been given you. And God doesn't allow his children to persist in darkness. He won't do it. You you choose to walk in darkness as a child of God, God's going to deal with us. He he chastens us. He kind of makes sure that it's very uncomfortable for us who love the Lord to stay in that darkness. And it really boils down to the area of lordship in our our lives. Because because that light is meant to shine. We're, We're supposed to push out darkness out of our world. It's one of the problems that we're facing right now in this election cycle. Can you imagine if up to this point, all of the believers that are in the United States, there are some 70 million of us. Did you know that? Supposedly. Now, whether that's a true number or not, I don't know. I haven't interviewed 70 million people to tell you, you know, if I think that there's really some evidence that they're actually saved. But people identify as a Christian. There's 70 million of them. You know how many people voted in the last election? 
about 50. Can you imagine if we all shined our light on our world and stood for Jesus? All this crazy insanity that we face? Shine your lights. That's the first little thing that Jesus says. And now his, his family come into the picture. Notice verse 19. And I love this little, this is kind of a neat little setting. It got really personal all of a sudden. Yeah, he's been ministering to the multitudes. He's been wandering with crowds. He's been out on the hillsides and all these big things have been happening. And now he kind of brings it back real. So it's like he kind of went home and he sits down with the family in the living room and he's, he's sharing a few little deep things with them. Verse 19, back in Luke 8 now. And then his mothers and his brothers came to him. Now you would think, if you were related to Jesus, that you would get like special privileges, right? That's my boy. That's my brother. We're going to go hang out with with Jesus. And then his mother and his brothers came to him, but could not approach him because of the crowd. Jesus is trying to get personal with them, and there's still people kind of hogging the space, so to speak. And it was told by some who said, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. So now he refers back to what he just said. He said, look, they're walking in the light. Now, they may not have the full. Matter of fact, at that time, it's hard to really tell from Scripture whether his brothers actually even had confessed him as Savior yet. It's highly likely they had not. But the light was shining on them. They were okay. He's actually deflecting. He's saying, look, this is not about my mother. This is not about my brothers. This is about you. What are you doing with the light? They're hearing the light. They're listening. They're okay. What about you? and the light brothers and sisters family of god that's the question it's not about what somebody else is doing with the light of the lord in their life it's what are you doing with the light of the lord in your life how is it personally affecting you the sacred ties of family you see some people kind of act almost like jesus's family here it's like well we got a special dispensation we're related to pastor pat related to pastor two we're 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 really we have this heritage and so we're good and so jesus is basically using his family as an example it's not about whether they're related to me it's about whether you actually are doers of the word or you're just hearers they're okay but what are you doing with what you've heard I think the family basically kind of came to his rescue. They're trying to, you know, he's got a little bit of a Messiah complex, and we're going to go rescue him. But we really see Jesus getting personal in this passage. And he's doing that for a reason, because what's coming next is, is one of our favorite stories of Jesus. The good news comes, his mother and brothers had come to see him. He basically ignores them. He says, that's not what I'm trying to communicate. My mom's going to be okay. My brothers are going to be okay. What are you doing? You see, your bond with Christ is forged by nothing but your own personal faith. Your bond with Christ is forged by nothing 
but your own personal faith. It's not your parents' faith. It's not your kids' faith. It's not your aunts, uncles, grandmas, and grandpas' faith. I, I grew up, and my, my grandmother on my mom's side was an organist in a Methodist church for 25 years. I didn't get saved because my grandma was an organist in a Methodist church. That light coming into my life, I had to deal with the light that God allowed to shine into my life. I had to make a personal profession of faith. And Jesus is making that case. You see, because some people think that they're entitled to the power of God without the profession of faith in God. That they're entitled to the blessings of God without having a relationship with God. Now, God providentially cares for the entire world. And he even does good things to evil people. But if you want to have direct access to God, it's not because you're related to him by blood. It's you're related to him by the cross. You have received and believed. And that is the only way you have a relationship with the Lord. And thereby, you have access to him. And so, Mom, take my brothers. You're good. We'll talk later. I'm talking to these people because they need the light. We pick up now in verse 22. One of our favorite little pictures, windows, of what Jesus does to make sure that people understand who he is. And I love this story because there's so many little simple things in it and I think we can condense it down to a a very fairly short period of time here. Verse 22, it says, And now it happened on a certain day. So this is several days later. We're not sure exactly. The Gospels don't give us an exact time period. But he's finished kind of speaking these little things. He's hanging out with the family. He's maybe enjoying some barbecue or something. I don't know. I can guarantee you they did not have pork ribs. I'm sorry. Maybe chicken. And he got into a boat with his disciples. He probably had fish, actually. Got into a boat with his disciples. And he said to him, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. Now, the first thing you need to notice is that Jesus actually tells them to do this. Furthermore, he's actually in the boat with them. So as this begins to unfold, remember that the Lord of heaven not only does actually cause storms in your life or allow storms to come into your life, but he is always with you in the middle of the storms of your life. He said, let's cross over to the other side of the lake, and they launched out. Now, it's important for you to understand that the word lake there is actually an actual good word to use because the Sea of Galilee, Gennesaret, Shenarath, the, the lake, the Sea of Galilee is just that, it's a lake. At its longest distance, it's maybe 14 miles long. At its widest point, it's about 8 miles wide. It is truly a lake. At the deepest point, it's a little over 150 feet deep. So it's not a massive body. It's not like, it doesn't have the water that, say, Lake Tahoe has in it that's over 2,500 feet deep out there in the middle. But it's about the same surface area. So it's a fairly tiny lake in regard to an ocean. So it's not really a sea, but it's very, very unique in where it sits in the geography of the world. 
But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are toast. We're dead men. We're perishing. We're going to drown. We're going to die. Now again, 13 miles long, 8 miles wide. It's a pretty good distance. You're not going to swim that, okay? Not unless you're really a good swimmer. Few people, you swim the English Channel, you could swim from one end to the other to, uh, of the Sea of Galilee. But it's a long ways. They're out in the lake. The wind begins to rage. And he arose and he uses a word that is almost always used by Jesus in reference to Satan himself. Demonic activity. He rebuked the wind and the raging of the water and they ceased and there was calm. So we see Jesus not only put the disciples into the boat, encourage them to get in the boat, but to push them out and start the journey and he gets in with them. And he does what God always does. He's not concerned. He's got it under control. His sovereign power is always in play. But he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, who can this be? Now bear in mind, they've been with Jesus on a full circuit of the region. They've watched him heal blind people and sick people and feed the 5,000. They have watched him do all manner of miracles. At one point in time, all of the sick of the region came and he healed all of them. It should not be a miracle to them that Jesus could do such a thing. But they still have doubt in their hearts. And this is where it's so important for us. Very often in our life experience, as we engage in things in life, and the Lord works in those areas of our life, we gain strength in the areas where he's already worked. But very often, we kind of reserve some areas of our life to where we're not quite sure God could handle that. Oh, he could handle, you know, maybe this minor financial crisis in your home, but he can't really manage taking care of your kids when they go off to college. So we need to fret about that, worry about that. We, we are selective fretters, selective worriers. We concern ourselves, as was with Martha that we saw a few weeks ago, we concern ourselves with many things. And so we have these areas of confidence where we've actually seen God work. So if there had been a blind man in the boat, they're all going, well, Jesus is going to heal him. If there had been hungry people in the boat, Jesus is going to feed him. If there had been somebody who was dead, they might even believe, well, he'll just raise them up from the dead. But they themselves faced with death. Well, they hadn't been there yet, so don't know if I got that kind of faith. And so Jesus is doing what he wants all of us to experience, and that's he's causing their faith to grow. He's saying, look, nothing, no storm of your life is outside of my power. You should know a little bit about the Sea of Galilee to really understand this particular story because sometimes it doesn't make any sense because it's hard to imagine. We think of a lake and we think of a boat 
Uh, when you travel with us to Israel, one of the places that we'll go to is actually the Jesus Boat Museum. Uh, in the late 1990s, there was a, the lake had receded quite a ways, and a mudflat had been exposed in Genesar. And there in that mudflat, uh, they actually found a boat from the time of Jesus. It's been archaeologically uh, excavated, pulled out, it's put into a museum and dated, and it is a 2,000-year-old wooden boat. That boat's a little less than 30 feet long. It has a beam of about 8 to 10 feet in the middle. That means it's 8 to 10 feet wide. Uh, and so it's a, it's a pretty substantial little little vessel. It would have been a sailboat. That was fairly common then, single mast, single sail. And so you, you could have maneuvered on the lake. But when you hear, well, it's a lake. I mean, what's going to happen on a lake? I mean, this is just kind of almost a silly story. Unless you understand the Sea of Galilee. It is the lowest body of fresh water on planet Earth. Uh, it sits the better part of 700 feet below sea level. And so when you're looking at the Sea of Galilee, it's actually 682 feet right now at the surface level, below sea level. Which means that everywhere around the lake is elevated by a fairly large amount. And if you were to take that all the way to Mount Hermon in the north, just some 40 miles away, there's over a 10,000 foot elevation change in that 40 miles. And so you can have snow on Mount Hermon, and the temperature at the Sea of Galilee can still be in the 70s or 80s. So there are huge temperature differences. Furthermore, just to the east of that, you have the desert region of the Plateau of Jordan. Now, this next trip, we're actually going to be going to Petra, Jordan. And so that plain of the Edomites is very, very, very warm. So you have this one place on planet Earth where you have a freshwater inland sea that's fed by the Jordan River, which flows down from the mountains of Lebanon, chiefly Mount Hermon and its drainage. And it fills this lake. And it's in a place that's in a desert, an inhospitable desert for the most part. And so the water itself has three thermal climbs in it, three levels of temperature. At the surface level, it can be in the 70s, 50 feet down. It will be in the mid-50s generally. Below 100 feet, it's actually about 52 degrees. So it is this crazy stirred-up thermal lake that also has geothermal pools that feed it. So it's one of the clearest bodies of water on planet Earth. It also has one of the highest concentrations of algae in the world on the floor, so it feeds lots of fish. But it has a surface area that is warm most of the time and yet moving a bunch. And when you think of a lake, you kind of think of, well, you know, little waves about this tall. That's probably all you're going to get. You understand the geography in the region, you would understand that from the north towards the Sea of Galilee, the air compresses down through a canyon and can reach hurricane speeds over the lake in the afternoon. Beginning about noon to 6 o'clock, the winds pick up. It is crazy out there. 1998, they had 10-foot waves on the Sea of Galilee. Overwhelmed the seawall in the city of Tiberias, threw boats up into the park, I mean, it gets crazy on the Sea of Galilee. And then, just like that, it's gone. Because of the geography. So the creator who created the Sea of Galilee knew exactly what he was doing to display his majesty. So you can imagine him putting the disciples in the boat, go, this is going to be good. 
It's like right before noon, we'll get started across the lake, and then the winds, because this story, according to Scripture, takes place sometime in December to April of that year, which means it was in the winter, which is when those winds are the most strong. And so Jesus is going, yeah, let's go across the other side of the lake. And he puts the guys in the boat, and then he gets in with them, knowing exactly what's going to happen. He goes to sleep, and he puts them into a test to test their faith. Can I tell you this? The Lord is going to put you into things to test your faith. And here's how the enemy would seize on this. He's going to seize on their fear. He's going to seize on the uncertainty. He may even seize on the natural phenomena of this world exactly as he did in the life of Job. You remember the story, uh, those, those catabolic winds that had taken over that region. Job experienced the same thing in Job chapter 1. Job his whole family is wiped out by a, by a whirlwind after the, the Lord and Satan have a conversation. And, and the Lord says, look, behold, all Job has is in your power. Just don't lay a hand to his person. You can do anything you want. So the enemy is seizing the opportunity of these winds to destroy the disciples, to destroy their, their faith. And the Lord sees it as an opportunity for their faith to grow. Jesus is the master of all of our storms. He's not only in it, but he's actually, I believe, he he not only knew what was going to happen, he knew it was necessary that that storm was going to need to happen in their life. They needed to have their faith stretched and grown. You see, they were okay with Jesus raising People, you know, taking care of people who are sick, causing blind to see. But they were not okay when it was their life that was on the line. You ever been in that situation where you can pray for faith in other people's life, but you don't want God to test you in the same way? Well, send them, Lord. But don't send me. Let Pastor Pat go to the Andes. I'm not sure how I do it, 14,000 feet. You see, God knows what you need. So he puts you into the boat, and he makes that situation beyond your control, but it's never out of his control. Matter of fact, he's waiting for that moment when it looks like it's out of control. Because that's where we see God the best. That's where we see him the deepest. That's where our faith has grown the most. You see, anything that you can take care of naturally, in a strange sense, you can almost say you really don't need God for that thing. When you're in a financial situation where you can just go work some more hours and take care of it, you know, you can kind of handle that yourself in a way, though the Lord is behind the scenes working in it, but you don't really see him the way you see him when you actually lose the job and you lose the home and you don't know where your family's going to go. And now all of a sudden you actually need God to provide you with a home, not just a few more hours of pay. You see, that's God at work in the storm of your life. That's the Lord saying, I got this. And I want you to notice what he's doing. While they're terrified, he's napping. Because he knows he has it under control. 
And he's waiting for us to catch up to where he already is. And I love this. He's up to every challenge. He he bypasses his family. And he moves straight to the storm. And and he's the one that can take care of every bit of it. You see, you're going to have the howling wind in your life. It's going to happen. You're going to have the raging seas in your life. It is going to happen. What the disciples were thinking, well, my faith only goes to here. I, I don't have the faith to get to this place. And God wants to grow our faith. It's not easy. It's terrifying. The disciples were terrified. They're freaking out. They're actually saying, look, don't you care that we're going to die? And Jesus, of course, cared that they thought that, but they needed to think that. They needed to come to the end of themselves. When you come to the end of yourself, that's where you find the Lord. When you don't come to the end of yourself ever, you have no idea how deep your relationship with the Lord is. Oh, he's there, and he loves you. On his side, he's doing all he should do. But he's asking you, he's asking us to step out in faith. He's saying, look, I I will go with you into the storm. I'll push you out into it. I'll be with you in it. And when the time is appropriate, I will simply rebuke the wind and the waves in your life. That's who he is. That is exactly why scripture says no weapon fashioned against you will prosper. Oh, you may get in the battle. You may be in the storm. But God will take care of us. We have to trust him with it. The master was up to the challenge. Big, small, the Lord can handle them all. He knew what Satan was up to. You see, Satan was in the fear. As Connie often reminds me, you know, if it, if it brings fear to your heart, it's not the Lord doing that. That's the enemy that brings in that kind of fear. Because the Lord is the Lord of peace, be still. The Lord is the Lord of his hand is upon us wherever we go. The Lord is the Lord of peace. No matter what the storm looks like. And at the word of the Lord, they went from we're all dead to isn't he wonderful. Just at the word of the Lord. That's all that happened. He didn't make a big deal about it. He simply said, wave, stop. Wind, quit. And it did. Because he created the mountains of Lebanon. He gouged out the African Rift Valley that the Sea of Galilee sits in the end of. He's the one that caused that plateau to rise in Jordan. the mountain range that divides the Sea of Galilee from the Mediterranean Sea that's 35 miles away. He, he, put, he knew exactly what was going on. And so all he had to do was say, stop, they got it, they learned it. He has command, he has mastery, he has superior force. He's up to every change, every charge, Everything that goes on in our lives, he has under control. The question is, do we believe it? 
and will we act on it? You see, we can say we believe it, but until the storm comes and we experience his peace, we don't actually know. And so when he brings a storm, he also knows what to do to calm the storm. So trust him in your storms. He's with you in it. Even if he brought you into the storm, he's the one that's going to get you out the other side of the storm. And in it, he's going to do a work of faith in your life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that every storm, every whirlwind, Lord, we're reminded of Job, what he must have thought. First, you boast about him and say he's the most righteous man on the earth, and then you allow his family to be taken from him, his fortune, all of his animals, his home. But Lord, the, the glorious news is what happened at the end of Job's life. For all those things were returned to Job tenfold. Lord, you gave exceedingly and abundantly beyond what he could ask or think. And then he had a wonderful reunion with his family when he left this earth. And so, God, we are grateful that you are the one who calms our storms, causes the waves to cease. And we pray that you would increase our faith to trust you when the wind blows and the waves roar. We thank you. We praise you. We bless you. We ask all this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.